Well, hello. What follows is audio excerpts from a Robert Burns dinner held at the Scottish Cultural Center in Vancouver, BC, February 9th, 2008. As is tradition through Scotland and well all over the world, folks celebrate the great uh, poet Robert Burns, which usually includes orations of his work, plenty of pipes and occasionally drums, and the famous toast to a haggis. So settle in, the audio jumps around a wee bit, but I'm sure you'll hardly mind because you'll be entranced by the words of the bard and the fine orators celebrating his life and his work. Very well incomprehensible. Even with suggestions, you may be mystified in places about what precisely is going on. So some years ago, I prepared this very prosaic translation into the language of the Sassanachs. And so this is how it goes. We're looking here at a Scottish sausage, otherwise known as a haggis. And this is what the poem, this is how it translates. Good luck to your honest, cheerful face, great chieftain of the race of sausages. You take your place at the head of all of them, page, tripe, or guts. You truly deserve a grace as long as my arm. You fill up the platter here, which groans beneath your weight. Your backside is like a hill in the distance. <laughs> your skewer, and that is the wooden peg that closes the opening of the sheep's stomach that holds the contents, your skewer would help to mend a mill when necessary, while through your pores the drops of condensation distill like beads of amber. The country farmer wipes his knife in preparation and cuts you up with appropriate skill, trenching your bright entrails so that they gush out as if you were digging a ditch. <laughs> and then, oh, what a glorious sight, steaming, warm, and rich. Then spoon, this is now the guests at the, at the, at the banquet, then spoonful after spoonful, they race and compete in eating it. May the devil take the one that comes last as they push on with the reading till soon all their fully swollen bellies are stretched as tight as drums. Then the old master of the house, as if he's just about to bust, mumbles, thanks be to God. <laughs> Is there anyone who, while eating his French ragu, or an oily Italian dish called olio that would fatten up a pig, or a fricassee, that would even make the pig puke with absolute disgust, looks down with a sneering, scornful attitude at a dinner such as this. Dang it. Poor devil. That's the one that fancies foreign food. Fancy foreign food. Poor devil. Just look at him as he eats his rubbishy food. He's as weak as a withered reed. His long, skinny legs no better than a good long whip. His, feasts no, his fists no bigger than a nut. Oh, how unfit he is for charging through a flood or a battlefield drenched in blood. Aha, but just look at the country fellow fed on haggis. The trembling earth resounds beneath his marching feet. Grasping his stalwart fist, there's a sword blade, and he'll make that blade whistle as he cuts off legs and arms and heads as if they were the tops of thistles, just like Braveheart, 
Okay, the last verse. You powers in heaven, who look after the affairs of mankind and distribute all the foods on the menu. Old Scotland doesn't need any thin, watery food that splashes about in soup holes. But if you want to hear her prayers of gratitude, give her a haggis. And that's the last line of the book. On face. Great chieftain of the pot race, up in the law you tack your place, page triper thin. We'll let you worthy your graces, lines my ear. The groaning trencher there you fill, your hurdies like a distant hill, your pin would help to mend a mill in time and eat, while through your pores the dews distill like amber beat. His knife! See rustic labour decked, and cuts you up with ready slit, drenching your gushing entrails breath like honey ditch. Ah, then oh, with a glorious set, warm, reeking, rich. Then horn for horn they stretch and strive, deal tuck a hymn as though they drive, till all their wheels swell, kites belive, and beat like drums. Then all good man is like to rise. Be thank it, Hobbs. Is there the hour his French ragu? Or only all with star sue? Or fricassee would make a spew with perfect scholar? Looks down with sneering, scorn for few on sick a dinner. Pear devil see him out his trash, as feckless as a withered rash. His spindle shank a get wet lash. Oh, how unfit. Through bloody flood and field to dash, oh how unfit. But mark, but mark the rustic haggis fed, the trembling earth resounds his tread, clapping our swallowed eve a blade, he'll make a whistle, and heats and legs and arms will snake like taps and thristle. Ye powers will mark mankind your care, and dish them out their bill of fare. All Scotland wants nay skin can wear that jobs in luggies. But if you wish her prayer for prayer, gee her a haggis. Chairman, honoured guests, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for that fine introduction. It reminds me of the, the Burns Supper held in Glasgow once in the opulent surroundings of the city chambers, where all the men were there in their fine Highland wear, and the ladies were there in their tartan dresses, and, and, and white dresses and tartan sashes. And the, the Chairman rose to introduce the principal speaker and he said, ladies and gentlemen, our principal speaker this evening is someone who requires absolutely no introduction. He hasn't turned up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, proposing the toast at a burn supper can sometimes be fraught with great difficulties and I'm thinking in particular of one speaker who on his way to a burn supper broke his dentures while chewing on a bar of toffee. We arrived at the venue, he mumbled his apologies to the organiser, explained that he would be unable to speak. 
Now, the organizers of burn suppers have to be ready for all eventualities, and this one was no exception. He told the speaker not to worry, made a quick phone call, and told them that help was on its way. <laughs> Ten minutes later, one of the guests arrived, carrying a cardboard box full of dentures. <laughs> the speaker searched through the box and found a set that fitted him and went ahead with his speech. <laughs> Afterwards, he approached the organizer and told them the dentists he had borrowed were actually better than his own. <laughs> Give my thanks to your dentist friend, he said. I will, was the reply, but he's not a dentist, he's an undertaker. <laughs> I'm sure we all enjoyed that wonderful meal we had this evening. I must admit the haggis was absolutely out of this world. And, uh, after two, two whole weeks of attending Burn Suppers went to his doctor and said, Doctor, ever since going to all these Burn Suppers, when I fall asleep at night, I keep seeing striped haggis. Have you seen a psychiatrist? asked the doctor. No, doctor, just striped haggis. <laughs> <laughs> the Scottish author William McIlvaney once described Scottish history as being self-destructive grandeur. He said, over the centuries, a feckless habit of snatching defeat from the jaws of victory has often given the impression of Scotland being a country of gallant losers. And you know, it's indeed a strange nation which makes heroes and heroines out of its losers. For three of the names which readily come to mind when we think of Scottish history, William Wallace, Bonnie Prince Charlie, Mary Queen of Scots, they were all eventually losers. <laughs> There's sometimes this tendency to live with this dream of heaven on earth. The Scots are prone to committing themselves to perfection, dissatisfied with anything less, and always optimistic that it will happen next day. For on countless occasions our Scottishness has become a cover-up for a kind of insecurity. And it shouldn't be like that. Scotland is one of the oldest nations in Europe, and Scotland's contribution to the world is not inconsiderable. Robert Burns, was not only a part of that contribution, he's a demonstration of how it was achieved. Because the main thing about the man whom we are celebrating tonight is not just the fact that he was another Scottish poet, it is that he took the language of a vividly creative people and through it expressed truth that belongs to everybody, regardless of their nationality. His poetry and his songs cut across every social and national barrier and his thoughts are as meaningful today as they were in his lifetime. Robert Burns is Scotland's most venerated poet, a man whose popularity is still on the increase over two centuries since his verses first appeared. Above all other Scottish poets, Burns continues to enjoy the privileged status of national muse, for it's largely through his poetry and songs that Scotland's national identity was restored to life and her language and lore preserved. Burns' deep love of his country fired his ambition to write in the Scottish vernacular, resulting in the creation of a unique brand of poetry full of character, integrity, humour, satire and lyrical harmony. His was not a lofty understanding of the poet's role. He believed in the realistic and honest treatment of subject and in the search for universal meaning in the commonplace. 
Give me a spark of nature's fire. That's all the learning I desire. Blown with drudge through dump and wire, blue and cared. My muse, though heavily in attire, may touch the heart. He was the poet of the people and the poet of the heart. And it was a heart that understood Scotland as no man has understood it since. Robert Burns considered song equally important to poetry and his knowledge of folk music was unrivaled. During his lifetime, he energetically gathered together and amended almost 400 songs covering every facet of 18th century Scottish life. The importance of his contribution to Scotland's literary tradition is beyond measure, but every year on the anniversary of his birth, it is fervently acknowledged in the celebrations that take place, not just in his native country, but throughout the world, and indeed in countries which Robert Burns never knew. The story of his life is well documented elsewhere, and the purpose of this tribute is not to give a fact-by-fact fact and year-by-year year account of his life. However, to fully understand the man, some details of his life are required. Robert Burns was the eldest of seven children. He was born on the 25th of January 1759 in a two-room clay cottage in the village of Alloway, about two miles from the town of Ayr in southwest Scotland. His father, William Burness, was a simple farmer who had travelled south from the northeast of Scotland to find work during the Highland Clearances, which followed the defeat of the Jacobites at Culloden in 1746. He was determined that his family would be well educated despite the hardship and poverty which they were all forced to endure. Robert Burns' early education was provided by John Murdoch, a competent young tutor hired by his father and four other neighbours when the school at Alloway was forced to close in 1765. However, once the, farm, the family moved to the moorland farm of Mount Oliphant, William Burness chose to educate the boys himself, and he taught them geography, language, ancient history, and encouraged them to read. Robert Burns became familiar with classic authors, including Shakespeare, and encountered the works of various poets and collections that occasionally passed through the household. An important influence on his life at this early stage was an old friend of his mother's, Betsy Davidson, whom Burns later described as having the largest collection in the country of tales and songs concerning devils, ghosts, fairies, brownies, and witches. And it was this catalogue of imagery firmly planted in his mind that Burns later drew on when he wrote Tam O'Shanter. At the age of 15, Burns wrote his first poem, Oh, once I loved a bonny lass, which was inspired by Nellie Kilpatrick, who worked with him in the harvest fields at Mount Oliphant, where he was the principal labourer. But once I loved a bonny lass, and I, I love her still, and whilst that virtue warms my breast, I'll love my handsome Nell. By 1777, Burns' father decided to abandon Mount Oliphant and moved his family to the larger and more fertile farm of Loch Lee, in the parish of Turgolton, and it was here that Burns began to enjoy a more active social life. By 1781, he had become a Freemason and had founded a debating club. He called it the Bachelors Club, and this helped him sharpen his instinctive wit and develop the powers of conversation, which a few years later were to impress the aristocracy of Edinburgh. When his father died in 1784, Burns took the family to the smaller farm of Mosgiel in the adjoining parish of Mochland. He was by now a grown man, anxious to make his mark, and he began to draw attention to himself with his writings. 
His poetic style matured dramatically, and it was here at Mosgiel that he produced the majority of his best-known works, such as Tiamus, Scotch Drink, Halloween, and The Cother Saturday Night. His poem, The Twa Dogs, was inspired by his late father's bitter experience of landlords and the wretched circumstances which led to his death. Holy Willie's prayer was a scathing attack on the church's old lifts and was followed by the Holy Fair, which described the hypocrisy and debauchery of the great religious festivals held around communion time. His first volume of verse was published in Kilmarnock in 1786. And at the time of its publication, his personal life, not for the first time, but indeed for the last time, was in deep turmoil. He had met and fallen in love with Jean Arnold. He'd met her two years earlier, and she was now carrying his child. Burns wanted to marry her, and the couple signed a document pledging themselves to each other, but her father would not allow the match and sent her away to Paisley to stay with relatives. The heartbroken Burns resolved to emigrate to Jamaica in the West Indies, and published his poems partly to raise funds for his departure. However, the publication of his poems proved an immediate success, and he was persuaded to abandon all thoughts of Jamaica and instead travel to Edinburgh with a view to the publication of a new edition of his verses. The 27-year-old Robert Burns was immediately popular in the Scottish capital. His gregarious, unaffected personality fascinated Edinburgh's elite society and he won many influential friends. He was introduced to William Creech, one of the best-known publishers and literary agents who undertook to publish the Edinburgh edition of Burns' poems. He was also asked by James Johnson to help collect all Scottish songs for the Scots Musical Museum, and this was a request which Burns responded to with great enthusiasm. Between 1787 and 1792, he contributed over 140 songs to Johnson's collections and refused all money for this work, as he considered it his patriotic duty. That I, for bare old Scotland's sake, a useful plan or book could make, or sing a song at least. It was during this time in Edinburgh that Burns undertook his famous Highland tour. Travelling by post chase with William Nicoll, the Edinburgh classics master, Part of the purpose of the journey was to seek out some of his relatives in northeast Scotland, but it also provided an opportunity to unearth some of Scotland's wonderful music, which was in danger of being lost forever. During the tour, he stayed with the Duke and Duchess of Athol at Blair Castle, and at the tiny Perthshire hamlet of Inver near Dunkeld, he met with the famous fiddler Neil Gow. Burns himself was a competent fiddler, and during his meeting with Gow, he became familiar with some of the old Gaelic years. So, furnished with a sum of about 500 pounds from the Edinburgh edition of his poems, and a collection of Scotland's almost forgotten traditional music, Burns returned to Mosgiel in February of 1788, and he married Jean Armour. Wanting to follow a career which would allow him to write poetry, yet provide a comfortable living, he moved to a farm called Ellisland near Dumfries but decided also to train as an excise officer in case farming proved unprofitable, and his fears were well-founded. Ellisland proved a bad bargain and was a financial disaster. Burns summed this up by saying, The Lord riddled all of creation, and the riddlings he poured on Ellisland. It was, however, Ellisland in 1790 on the banks of the River Nith 
that he wrote the epic Tamashanto, a masterpiece without equal. Burns now quit farming. He moved to the town of Dumfries to take up full-time work as an excise man. While working at this profession, Burns continued to contribute to Johnson's Musical Museum, and in 1792, he received a letter from George Thompson in Edinburgh inviting him to take part in a new collection of Scottish songs. From 1793 onwards, he was almost entirely absorbed in song revision, and by June of that year, the first volume of Thompson's collection had appeared, including the 25 songs which Burns had promised. During Burns' lifetime, editions of his poetry were published in Ireland and in the United States of America. His work circulated widely in Europe, with translations into French and German, and this greatly influenced the romantic poets and composers of the time, such as Haydn, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, and Kosovoff. In the spring of 1795, Burns wrote to his friend Maria Riddle that he was, I quote, so ill as to be scarce able to hold this miserable pen to this miserable paper. Later that year, his daughter Elizabeth died, and Robert was heartbroken. Weakened by his bereavement, in many severe bouts of illness over the years, he had neither the energy or the will to fight off another attack of rheumatic illness that winter. He lingered on in great pain until his death in July 1796, at the age of only 37. The myths of drunkenness and dissipation which grew up in the years following his death have been greatly exaggerated. For the record, Burns had two sets of twins by Jean Armour before he formally acknowledged her as, as his wife and five other children, the last Maxwell Burns being born on the day of his funeral. Four other children were born out of wedlock. It's often been suggested that Burns' prowess as a lover was a dominating feature of his personality, yet many of his songs are unlikely ever to be surpassed for their power of vibrant expression or for their depth of feeling. They're the warmest, richest, most tender, and most sensuous love songs that any poet has ever given to the world. Gestrine went to the trembling string, the dance gave through the lifted hall. To thee my fancy took its wing, I sat but neither heard nor saw. For this was fair, that was broad, and yon the toast o' oh, the tune. Aside and said among them all, Ye are me, Mary Morrison. Had we never loved, say kindly. Had we never loved, say blindly. Never met or never parted, we had never been broken hearted. These last four lines were declared by Sir Walter Scott and Lord Byron to contain the essence of a thousand love tales. In his songs are mirrored our laughter and our tears, our independence, our poverty, our pride. And they speak of friendship and they speak of love. They speak of love of country and love of woman. And they are written with such sincerity and simplicity that many of his most memorable verses consist of words of only one syllable. But to see her was to love her, love but her, and love forever. Tonight, ladies and gentlemen, we salute Robert Burns. We salute him as a man who helped Scotland preserve her language and traditions. We salute him 
as the man who helped Scotland to retain her identity. During his lifetime, Scotland was fast becoming an appendage of England and the language and lore were in grave danger of extinction. Poets copied their southern neighbours by using grand heroic couplets full of artificiality. But Robert Barnes reached the core of the Scottish soul and has continued to do so. Robert Burns was neither a man or a poet in purely black or white. His was a life of a hundred shades of grey, and his poetry ranged from the hastily written topical piece to gems in the Scottish tongue. There can be no heights without hollows. There can be no greatness without lesser moments. And in short, Robert Burns was a human being who, if he could live his life over again, might order it very differently, but the result would probably be much the same. Today, over 2,000 different editions of Robert Burns' works have been published, with translations into 50 languages. Small wonder that a man who could elevate a mouse to a state of grandeur, and who created a world anthem in all lang syne, is now ranked among the leading world poets of all time, and still speaks for mankind all across the globe. Then let us pray that come it may, and come it will for all that, that sense and worth or all the earth will bear the gree and all that, for all that and all that is coming yet for all that, that man to man, the world o'er, shall brothers be for all that. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I ask you to be outstanding and raise your glass. Because of the immortal memory of Robert Burns.
indeed, as you may have surmised, there was a wee bit of scotch and ale drinking while we celebrated dear Robbie Burns. If you're curious about this gentleman, visit davostory.com for other audio bits and pieces. <laughs> um, also, this is the Maple Ridge Pipe Band who are apparently the cream of the scene, and I quite enjoyed their performance. And this was, again, the Scottish Cultural Center, and that was a gentleman called Donald Taylor doing the oration and tribute to the bard, as far as I recall, anyhow. Honestly, I should have more details about really who put this on, but it was 2008. Visit Davo's story for more odds and ends. And to the dear bard, I'll quote... A fond kiss, and then we sever. A farewell, and then forever. We are standing. Toast, His Majesty the Queen.